I don't usually give my sermons a title. Typically what happens is I preach them and then after the fact on Sunday, our communications team emails me and says, what should we call this thing when we post it online? And I come up with a title. So today I've actually decided to provide us a title in advance at the start of the sermon because it really carries with it kind of the message and the heart of what it is that Paul is about to talk to us about in Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 8 through 15. So the title of the message is this, The Mission is Mutual. The mission is mutual. If you're jotting down notes, you may jot that down. The subtitle is how to effectively discourage pastors and missionaries and make them want to quit and burn their entire life's work to the ground. <laughs> I know that some of you may be thinking, oh my gosh, that's a lot to handle, but we're going to get there. Stick with me and we'll walk through the passage step by step. So here's the deal. Uh, Romans chapter 1 verses 16 and 17 is kind of the thesis of the book. We're going to get there next week. And then what follows is like the best systematic theology book you've ever read in your life. In fact, early uh, Harvard Law students used to study the book of Romans because of its rhetorical efficacy. Pretty cool, right? So before Paul gets to that kind of systematic theology piece, he introduces himself, which we talked about last week. Remember, he's a servant, he is sent, and he is set apart. And we talked about the gospel of God that he's set apart for. Now he's going to make some personal comments. It's Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 15, and I hope you have a Bible. Before we read it, I want you to be looking for two things that are kind of hidden in the text a little bit. Those two things are a rebuke and repetition. A rebuke and repetition. These are personal comments that Paul makes, and they contain a gentle rebuke. Now, if you know Paul's other writings, typically he's about as delicate as a nine pound hammer. In this particular case, he's going to be a little more subtle and his rebuke is kind of cloaked a little bit, likely because he did not plant this church. He's never visited this church. He knows people there, but he does not have that type of relationship with them. So he'll talk to them a little bit more like a peer as opposed to like a father. And so listen for a gentle rebuke in these uh, verses. The second thing is I want you to watch for repetition. One really effective Bible study tool when you're studying passages on your own is look for repeated words and phrases. And in this particular case, the repeated words and phrases in Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 15 are kind of hidden in plain sight. So I want to see if you can pick up those two things, a kind of a cloaked, gentle rebuke, and then the repetition. So here we go. If you got your Bibles, Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 15, Paul writes this. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. 
I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Did you catch it? Did you catch the repetition and the rebuke? If you didn't, let's start with the repetition. If I asked you in this passage what words are repeated or phrases are repeated, you might say gospel or God, and you'd be right. But watch this. Verse 8, I, my, you, your, my, I, my, I, you, my, I, you, you, I, I missed one, I, you, you, you catching it? You catching the repetition? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish it out just so you can mark it down in your Bibles too. Okay, so I, you, some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that we, there you go, by each other's faith, both yours Mine, I, you, brothers, there's an address there to his listener, prevented an other that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I, both Greeks and barbarians, both the wise and the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you. Now do you see it? Do you see how Paul is working really, really hard to communicate to this church that we are on mission together. You and I are in this together. In the rest of the book of Romans, what you're going to see is Paul talking about God, Paul talking about humanity, talking about things in kind of the third person. This is very, very personal. This is Paul speaking directly to his listener and look at him going back and forth. I, you, I, you, each other, mutually encouraged, brothers, I, you, I, you. That's the first thing. There's the repetition. And, and then here's the rebuke. Paul says, look, I've always longed to come to you so that we may be mutually encouraged. And I don't want you to be unaware. I've often intended to come to you. See, here's what's likely happening it is that Paul, as we mentioned last week, has never visited this church in Rome. He's been on the road for 25 years as a missionary, but he's never visited this church. And what has likely happened is that word has got back to Paul that the church at Rome is a little bit bummed, miffed, disappointed, that Paul hasn't yet visited them personally. And what he's doing is he's addressing them directly, albeit in a very, very gentle way. Here's the deal. Paul didn't have a relationship with the church at Rome like I have with you, did he? (laughs) So he does this gently. I'm going to do it with just a little more force today. So buckle up because there is an exhortation coming about how we treat and interact with pastors and missionaries, which Paul is. And he's talking about his role as a pastor and missionary, and he wants the church at Rome to know how to interact with him. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to break it up phrase by phrase, just like we did last week. We're going to make some observations about those phrases and about the Greek words. Then we're going to do the NLT, the New Lucas translation, and then we're going to apply it. Sound good? All right, here we go. If you've got your Bibles, I would invite you to make these marks in your own Bibles and break it up phrase by phrase. Here's what Paul says. He says, first, I thank my God 
through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. We're going to kind of uh, include that whole phrase together. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, we'll include that whole phrase together, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. There we go. I am under obligation, Paul says, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both the wise and the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. There we go. We've broken it up phrase by phrase. Now let's pick it apart. Paul starts this way. He says, first, and I want to just kind of make a quick observation. He doesn't ever say second. So what Paul is saying here is not this is first in a succession of some things that I'm going to communicate to you, but he says to begin with, or maybe even most importantly, or first and foremost, the, the, the first thing that you need to hear uh, above all else, I thank my God, which is fascinating to me, because he says, through Jesus Christ. So remember we talked about this last week, that Paul is Jewish through and through. So he says, my God, this is the God that Paul has always had, that he has always worshipped, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, Yahweh. But now he is thanking God through Jesus Christ. You see Jesus' mediatorial role here. That is to say that Paul approaches the throne of God through Jesus Christ. Isn't that cool? Then he says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. And because I'm from the southern United States, when we do the NLT here in a minute, we're just going to translate that y'all. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all y'all. Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. A couple of things that we want to make note of here. First is that this word in the original Greek is pistuio. And it means, I know my pronunciation is awful, but Greek is tough for me to pronounce. Uh, but we talked about this word last week very, very briefly, but I want to hammer on it a little more this week. Paul is not talking about kind of mentally agreeing with a number of facts. Paul is not talking about kind of a nebulous kind of faith or hope in something or a faith in faith or just kind of maintaining a positive attitude. This word here means active trust in God, a daily placing ourselves before the throne of God and saying, I trust you with my decisions. I trust you with the outcome. I trust you with consequences. And he's saying to the church in Rome, your active trust is proclaimed in all the world. That original Greek word is cosmos, uh, where we get our word cosmos uh, from uh, that we talk about in English now. 
Um, I kind of feel this way just as we go through the passage, just so you know. Have you ever seen my big fat Greek wedding? Love that. Okay, the dad in big fat Greek wedding, he, he says this, ready? You give me a word, any word, I will show you how the root of that word is from the Greek. We're going to do that a few times today. So this is cosmos here. And he says, your faith is proclaimed in all the world. That begs the question, why? Why does everyone in the known world at this time, why are they all hearing about the church at Rome's active faith in God? Well, we can only guess, but here is my guess, is that Rome was the capital of the empire. Rome was the hub of the old world order. And remember we talked about when Jesus came, he came to set up a new world order, to be the new king and to set up new community. And so it's kind of like this new king and new world order and new community, it has sprung up in the seat of the old king, the old world order and the old community. It would be a little bit this way, like this. If you were to set up like a Gambler's Anonymous thing to help people who were addicted to gambling and you said, and we're going to set up our offices at Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas. There, this is a subversive thing that's happening in Rome and this new community of people is doing something different, worshiping a new king in new community and moving forward a new world order. And so their faith is being proclaimed in all the world. And he says, for God is my witness. This word here is the Greek word where, uh, that we get our modern word martyr from. God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit, my innermost being in the gospel of his son. This word here, uh, serve, is very, very interesting. It's latruyo, and it's the same word that Paul uses in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, when he says, Therefore, my brothers, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is an acceptable act of worship. This word translated serve here is the same word for worship in Romans 12. In other words, for Paul, service to the kingdom is equivalent to worship. If you worship God, you'll serve him. If you serve God, you're worshiping. Those words are the same there. He says, I do that in my spirit in the gospel of his son. Same phrasing here as in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Uh, seven or eight that we talked about last week. This is his son's gospel. This is possessive. Uh, in Romans chapter one, verses one through eight, he talks about God's gospel. In this case, it's his son's gospel. And he says, for God is my witness, whom I serve and worship with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. This word here is one Greek word and the root word is lack. He says, there is no lack for mentioning you and praying for you. And then he uses a different Greek word here for always. So he's doubling up on this church and he's saying, look, I am praying for you always, all the time, constantly and consistently. And he says, I mention you in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I will now at least succeed or at last succeed in coming to you. 
So listen, this is this phrase, God's will, this is not a throwaway phrase for Paul. Uh, It wasn't for the reformers either. They used to say, the reformers used to say, uh, if God wills it, they would kind of throw that phrase onto a lot of things that they would talk about in their life. And, And again, it's not a throwaway kind of obligatory phrase. They saw their life completely within the context of the sovereign will of God. Same thing with Paul. He sees his context, he sees his life within the context of the sovereign will of God. Only if God wills it, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Whew, that was a lot, wasn't it? That was a lot. Why don't we stop here just for a minute, we'll pause. We'll do the NLT, the New Lucas translation, so we can kind of wrap our minds around what Paul has said so far. So here we go. Paul says, to begin with, I thank God through Jesus Christ for y'all because our world has heard about your active trust in God and the God I worship in my innermost being because of his son's good news knows that I am consistently always in fact praying that it's within his will that I come see you. That's what Paul has said so far. And you can hear in Paul's language and his voice uh, this, uh, this desire, this, this longing, which he's about to talk about, to go see the church at Rome. Now, you might think, gosh, this is a lot. We just covered a lot. And, and, and I would uh, quote, quote a song. Uh, you, you thought this was the ocean? This is just the pool. We're about, to, we're about to get to the ocean. All right. So here's what Paul says. He says, for I long to see you. Let me fix my marker here. He says, for I long to see you. In the original language, that word is epipotheo. It's uh, where we get our word pathos from. You see, you show me a word, any word. Uh, I'll show you its root is in the Greek. So I long to see you. And and it's, and it's it's a strong desire. Why? That I may impart to you some spiritual gift. Now, okay, so Paul is not talking about a spiritual gift that's given to every Christian, like a specific skill or heart passion that's meant to edify the body. He talks about some of those gifts in his other letters. Talks about mercy or teaching or preaching or hospitality or whatever. He's not talking about that. He leaves it kind of open and nebulous that I'm going to bring something to you that's spiritual in nature, pneumaticos, and a gift, charisma. Uh, Again, my Greek is awful, but that's where we get the modern word charisma, right? You give me a word, any word, I'll show you the root is from the Greek. And, and he says that this spiritual gift is going to strengthen you. Interesting word here in the Greek, it's sterizo, where we get our modern word for steroid, believe it or not. I want to firm up, solidify, strengthen you. That is, and here's the critical word, that we may be mutually encouraged is how it's translated here. In the original language, it's a transliteration. I'm not going to use the Greek characters, but this word is sum para kaleo. It's there on the screen for you, but it is the only uh, time in the entire Bible that this word is used. And it's a combination of three different Greek words. Sim, meaning like together, where we get our word sympathetic. I am with you in your emotions. Sim, para. This, uh, this uh, phrase or this word, this Greek word takes on different forms. In this particular case, it means 
alongside. And kaleo means called. When Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, that he is called of God, he uses this word kaleo. So when he says this word to the church at Rome, only time in the whole Bible that this word is used, three Greek words together, he is saying that we are together alongside each other in our calling. That we are together alongside one another in our calling and we may be doing that and mutually encourage how it's translator, translated by each other's active trust in God, both yours and mine. Now, I don't want you to be agnoeo, unaware, agnostic, w- without knowledge, brothers and sisters, by the way, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. 25 years on the road as a missionary, Paul has been prevented, whatever that means, because it's not been God's will, right? He's been prevented in coming to Rome. So it begs the question once again, why? Why has Paul been prevented from coming to them? Well, it's not been God's will. Uh, More specifically, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 15, we'll start halfway through verse 19. He says this, he says, from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ and thus make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see and those who never heard will understand. He says, this is the reason why, that's verse 22, that I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, Since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I've longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Paul says this, he's like, look, don't get it twisted. I did want to come to you. I have longed to come to you, but there have been other priorities. Namely, I wanted to preach the gospel where Jesus had not been proclaimed yet. The gospel has already been proclaimed where you are, the church at Rome. Someone else has built that foundation, Paul says. But I see it as my calling to preach the gospel where he has not been named. So now I want to come to you so that we might be simparakaleo, mutually encouraged. In order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So it's interesting that Paul uses this word reap here, reap some harvest. This is where we uh, get our modern English word for echo, where you speak into a canyon and that uh, that sound comes back to you. Paul is saying, I'm going to speak the gospel and then I'm going to, it's going to be returned to me and reaping some harvest among the Gentiles, which makes sense, right? The, the gospel hasn't been proclaimed there yet. So Paul wants to reap a harvest of people who, who proclaim the name of Jesus, who have not yet. But he says, I also want to reap a harvest among you, among you. Well, the church at Rome is going, what is that like? We're Christians already. What does it mean reap a harvest among us? What Paul is saying is that if I can encourage you in your faith and introduce someone to Jesus for the first time, both of those are a harvest for me. In other words, Paul is saying evangelism and discipleship, to use the language in the church, are the same thing. And evangelism and discipleship are both fueled by what? that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles, that I may preach the gospel. 
there you go. It's fueled by the gospel. Paul concludes this way. He says, I'm under obligation. I am indebted, literally, Paul says, both to Greeks and barbarians. That, that word there is not like barbarians, capital B. The original language is barbaros, and it's onomatopoeia. The word sounds like what it is. So people uh, that did not speak Greek to people who did speak Greek sounded like this, bar, 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 bar. And so they were called barbaros. So it's not, a, it's not a demeaning term or anything. It's just someone who doesn't speak Greek and both to the wise and the foolish. Paul is not using these as proper terms like smart people and dumb people. He's just saying, I feel indebted to everyone uh, to preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome. So there we go. We've picked it apart, haven't we? We've gone through and made observations. We've got Greek words here. We understand kind of what Paul is getting at. And you might already be hearing that gentle rebuke. And so let's go back through and make sure that we understand it and put it in kind of modern language. This is, and I say so jokingly, the NLT, the New Lucas translation based on the observations we just made. He says, to begin with, I thank God through Jesus Christ for y'all because our world has heard about your active trust in God and the God I worship in my innermost being because of his son's gospel or good news knows that I'm consistently always in fact praying that it's within his will that I come see you. In fact, I long to see you so that I can pass on a spiritual gift that will build up your faith and your faith would encourage me as well. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that I've tried to come see you many times so that I could reap a harvest among you and among the others living in Rome. I see myself as being indebted to all humanity, so I am joyfully ready to preach the good news to you also who are in Rome. All right, so we've understood it, we've picked it apart, what is it that Paul is doing here? Well, he's saying to this church at Rome, friends, the mission is mutual. The calling is shared. I, as a vocational ministry worker, am not here to encourage you. We are here to encourage one another. And not just so that our faith might be built up, although that's true, but to encourage one another in this mutual calling that we have to proclaim the gospel, declare the good news about Jesus, and to demonstrate that good news in all of our life. I'm not someone that you have hired to send out to do that work for you. Rather, we share in this calling together. So don't put your needs first. Namely, you want me to visit you. Put the gospel first. Don't put your needs first. Namely, you need encouragement in your faith. Remember that we are in this together, that the mission is mutual. Are you starting to hear that gentle rebuke a little bit? You starting to hear where I'm going a little bit? Paul is reminding the church at Rome, I am not at your beck and call. This is not something that you have sent me to do, but something we share in together. So if you're hearing it and you're picking up on what Paul is doing in this passage, here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to speak to you as your pastor. And I've been your pastor for about seven and a half years. I'd like to speak to you on behalf of other pastors. You may not even call Bayview Glen Church your home. You may attend another church. I'd like to speak to you on their behalf as well. Hopefully I'm not speaking out of turn. 
I'd like to speak to you on behalf of some of our missionaries, some of our supported workers that are proclaiming the gospel in the field in places where it's never been heard. I'd like to speak to you on behalf of our church staff. And just as Paul has reminded the church of Rome, this is our priority. This is how we treat one another. I'm not hired to do the work of ministry for you, but we share in that calling. I, I want to remind you as well. And, and in so doing, I, here's what I want to do. I want to give you three questions to never ask a pastor, a church staff member, or a missionary. Then I want to give you three things that you can do right now to be an encouragement and do what Paul is calling us to do, simpara kaleo, to share together in this great calling. So here are three questions never to ask. First, why doesn't the pastor support my ministry? For the church at Rome, the way they asked that question was, why hasn't Paul shown up here yet? For our church, different times and places in different churches, this question might be asked this way. Why doesn't the pastor talk about my ministry from the platform? Why doesn't my ministry have a bigger budget? Why hasn't the pastor shown up to my small group? Why hasn't the pastor visited me in my home? Why hasn't the pastor come to visit me in the hospital? Well, because there are higher priorities, namely that the gospel is proclaimed in all the world. In his commentary on this specific passage, Robert Mounts writes this. He says, one of the first lessons of effective leadership is the importance of setting priorities. Not only must things be done right, that's management, but the right things must be done, leadership. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying to the church at Rome, I wanted to, I long to, don't get it twisted. I, 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 I long to, I desire to visit you, but there were other priorities. I would say to you, church, there have been times where I have desired to visit you and other pastors on our staff and staff members have desired to be with you or support ministries or whatever, but there are other priorities and those priorities trump everything else. In fact, one priority trumps everything else. It's the proclamation of Jesus. So that's question number one. Why doesn't the pastor support my ministry? Two, why doesn't the pastor listen to my criticism? Why doesn't the pastor listen to my criticism? Oh, and it's constructive criticism. Oh yeah, it's constructive criticism on how to do youth ministry or how to preach or what songs to select or how to do effective small groups. And I've got a lot of ideas and thoughts on that. Why doesn't the pastor listen to my criticism? In, this, uh, in his commentary on this particular passage, R.C. Sproul, who's been around a long time, a brilliant man and pastor, writes this about this particular word, simparakaleo. He says, every pastor needs to be encouraged. Let's just stop there. Every pastor needs to be encouraged. That's why Paul says, I want to be mutually encouraged, not just me to you, but us together. Sproul goes on, he says, so often the work of the pastorate in our day is an exercise in discouragement. The pastor is fair game for all criticism and every Sunday afternoon people have roast pastor for dinner. When a pastor stands at the door at the end of the service and speaks to 50 people, 49 will say, thank you pastor for bringing the word of God today. It ministered to me and I appreciate the message that I've heard this morning. However, there is one who says, 
Cannot believe that awful sermon you preached this morning. When the pastor goes home, is he going to remember the 49 words of encouragement or the one word of discouragement? If other pastors are like me, that one remark will eat away at them for the rest of the day. I'm not like Sproul. Those remarks don't eat away at me for the rest of the day. They eat away at me for the rest of the month. That is why pastors have to be encouraged. Paul needed that kind of encouragement. I need that kind of encouragement. Our missionaries need that kind of encouragement. The rest of our pastors on staff need that kind of encouragement. Our elders need that kind of encouragement. Our ministry leaders and staff members need that kind of encouragement whereby we are firing at them at all times. You can do it. Keep it up. Focus on Jesus. Keep at it and not criticism. Number three, why doesn't the church have a ministry to blank? Here's what this typically means, and here's how it sometimes takes shape. Uh, we say things like, you know, the church should really have, or I can't tell you how many times in my ministry career I've, I've heard this, you guys should really have, you guys, as in staff, as in the church as an organization. And the reality is we are called to this gospel, gospel proclamation together. This is not something we have hired our staff to do. This is a calling that we all share together. So uh, one of the former lead pastors that I used to work for, when people came to him and said, hey, you guys should really have a ministry too, or you guys should really start a program for, his response was typically this, great, you're in charge. And a lot of times people go, well, I can't do that. It's you guys should really, I, I'm busy. I've got a job. Okay. <laughs> See, we're not going to do that then. This is not something that we've hired staff members to do. This is something that we all share in together. Paul's reminding the church at Rome, this is not about me to you. This is a shared calling. Why doesn't the pastor support my ministry? Why doesn't the pastor listen to my criticism? And why doesn't the church have a ministry to blank? Three questions. Never ask a pastor, staff member, or missionary. So we've talked about what not to do. Let's talk about what we can do. Three things that you can do to share in this calling with vocational ministry workers so that our faith is proclaimed in all the world and so that everybody gets to hear the good news about Jesus. Here's three things you can do. First, speak up. Speak up. Listen, I know that many of you, perhaps in the vast majority of you, would say that our corporate worship gatherings are a blessing to you, whether they're in person or virtual. You would say that the music that our team puts together really ministers to your heart. You would say that some of the ministry programs we have, like Alpha or Life Groups or Serve Teams or whatever, really bring joy to your spirit and encourage you in your faith. But a lot of times we, we hold back in, in kind of saying, hey, this blesses me. This encouraged me. This was meaningful to me. And I would just say when that thought crosses your mind, Find a way to speak it out to those who are in vocational ministry and those even that you share in that calling with around your life. Be a person that speaks up about the things that minister to you. Number two, get on mission. <laughs> get on mission. Share in this calling with us. That's why our mission here at Bayview Glen Church begins this way. We work together so that everyone everywhere can experience God's love and, and, and his created purpose through Jesus. We work together, not we hire pastors or we send missionaries so that everyone everywhere. It's we 
work together. We are in this together. We share in the calling. So get on mission. Tell your friends and neighbors about Jesus. Invite people into your homes when you can do that. Get on a Zoom call. Get on the phone and encourage people. Get on mission as we move towards this new kingdom, new world order, and new community. Share with us that calling. Finally, number three, I would just say this. Encourage a worker. Encourage a worker. And when I use that word worker, I mean those who are in vocational ministry, like pastors and ministers, like our staff members here at Bayview Glen and other churches, and like missionaries. Encourage a worker. And I'd like to make that really easy for you. Right now, at the end of the service, you can jump on our website, bayviewglen.org, and there's a button right there on the front page, and it just says Encourage a Worker. You just click that button, it's going to take you to a form where you can encourage any of our missionaries that we support, any of our pastoral staff members or other staff members. Drop them a note through that form and encourage them in the work that they're doing. Because, friends, the mission is mutual. So we share in it together. So again, I invite you to speak up, to get on mission and to encourage a worker today.